Hello and welcome to A Flatpack History of Sweden, your driving instructor on the journey through Swedish history. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa, and this is episode 70. We are finally going to talk about what happened when Queen Margrethe gathered the Swedish, Danish and Norwegian noblemen and councillors in Kalmar in the summer of 1397. Yes, we've been following this extraordinary ruler's journey over the last few decades and seen how she managed to not just take power, but maintain it in all three Nordic kingdoms. And in the last episode, we covered the events that preceded the meeting in Kalmar and laid the foundation for what is about to happen. So if you haven't already, we strongly recommend you listen to those episodes first to get a bit of the context about what's going to happen today. Definitely, but let's talk about the Swedish phrase of the week. This week's phrase is den som venter på något gott venter aldrig för länge. And it's pretty straightforward English translation this time. It's the one who waits for something good never waits too long. And that's pretty much what it means as well. It means that you should be patient and that good things are worth waiting for. Say you have a kid that's anxious to get the latest Xbox game, but has been told they'll get it for Christmas, but Christmas is still months away. Then you can tell the kid that den som väntar på något gott väntar aldrig för länge, imploring that they should be patient and wait. If the game is really as good as they think, it'll be worth waiting for. It's a bit of a phrase that evokes stoic patience, it seems. Uh, But there are also other, perhaps more jokey variations that I've heard. Yes, there are. Uh, So one is just simply swapping the word never, aldrig in Swedish, for the word alltid, meaning always. So then the phrase becomes the complete opposite. Den som väntar på något gott väntar alltid för länge. The one who waits for something good always waits for too long. So that's more of an accurate reflection of life, really, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I suppose. There's also a version of the phrase that goes Den som väntar på något gott blir aldrig fet, meaning the one who waits for something good never gets fat. In this version, the word good is used to mean tasty, as in food that tastes good. So in English, it would be more like the one who waits for something tasty never gets fat, meaning that tasty food is rare and if you were to wait and only eat the super tasty stuff, then you'd never get fat. Now let's head over to Kalmar and the summer of 1397. How about that? Sure, sounds good. Whilst Margareta has control over Sweden, Denmark and Norway, and the threat from Mecklenburg has eased, especially now that the heir to the throne of Mecklenburg, another Erik, has suddenly passed away, and Margareta's own heir to the throne, Erik of Pomerania, has been formally elected king in all three kingdoms, but nonetheless, her rule is still not secured. No, not only are remnants of the Vitali brother pirates still plaguing the Baltic Sea, but the Mecklenburgs still hold on to Gotland through their commander, the quisling that defected from Margareta's army and joined the Mecklenburgs. From Gotland, they have this perfect base to launch attacks on Sweden, which is of course something Margareta doesn't want to happen. In addition to that, the Hansa are getting restless with Margareta because they're worried, like they always are, that a strong, unified Scandinavia will become a big threat to their trade dominance in the region. 
Moreover, Margaretha has been busy with reforms in all her three kingdoms, which we talked about in previous episodes. Throughout medieval Nordic history, we've seen how a strong nobility can often rule the king rather than the other way around. We've seen this most recently with how Albert of Mecklenburg was not just brought in with the explicit desire of the nobility to have a sort of puppet king on the throne after the rule of King Magnus, but we also saw how continuously his power was limited by the council, forcing him to sign these oaths, Kungafosekran, and by wealthy noblemen like Bujonsson Grip claiming much of the power. So, of course, Margareta didn't want this. She appreciated that a weak crown led to internal instability and weakness to outside threats. And she also, no doubt, wanted power and wealth for herself and her family. And so the run-up to this meeting in Kalmar kind of comes from two different angles. There's the outside threats and pressures from Mecklenburg and the Hansa, and then there's the inside need for subduing the nobility and further establishing royal power as supreme. Exactly, and so it's in this spirit that Margareta and Erik calls for a meeting in Kalmar. And what a meeting, because the meeting itself lasts for almost three weeks. That is one long meeting. Yeah, well, maybe meeting is the wrong word. It's more of a gathering or even a congress, perhaps. But either way, the main event takes place on the 17th of June, and it's the magnificent coronation of Eric as king of a Nordic union. No pomp or expense was spared on this event. Eric was crowned not by one but two archbishops, and after the coronation, a procession is led through the town. In accordance with tradition, Eric also knights 133 new knights. So his sword arm was probably getting a bit tired then. And it's likely these new knights got to show off their skills in some sort of tournament in connection to the coronation as well. I'm surprised we're not going to have one with King Charles next year. Um, that would be cool, having all the knights uh, fight each other in a tournament. But that's what they did back in uh, 1397. And these new knights are to take the place of the useless knights dubbed during Albert's reign as so-called useless knights. And these were ones who Margareta and Eric have taken their knighthoods away from them in the knee-shirping recess just before Kalmar. This time around, it's also clearly stated that knights are forbidden from building their own private castles, because from now on, it was the crown and not the nobility who were going to decide where and how castles were built. And this is just one of the clear moves to put power in the hands of the crown and less in the nobility's hands. So now, Erik is not just king of Sweden and Denmark and Norway, but he's also king of them all jointly, this might seem as largely semantics, but it's actually of crucial importance. Because this is the first time in history that Sweden, Norway and Denmark have all been united at the same time with each other all together. It's a Nordic union under one ruler and with a common framework for the state laid down. The Union is an extraordinary achievement for Margareta and her allies, and a crowning glory of the power that she has built across the Scandinavian countries in the last decades. Yeah, and so this is important because, like we said, 
Previously, uh, Margareta had been ruler of these countries before, and so had Eric, but now it's formally written down as a union rather than just three individual kingdoms. And like we said, it really is a Nordic union, because whilst we talk about Sweden, Denmark, and Norway, we know that the actual landmass in this union goes far beyond what is the modern-day version of these three countries, just Finland alone. That's worth reminding ourselves of. Sweden at the time as you just said, includes Finland, but also goes further east than modern-day Finland does. So the Swedish part of the Kalmar Union includes Sweden, all of Finland, and parts of what is modern-day Russia. And the same is true for Norway and Denmark. They're both bigger in the past than they are today. The Norwegian kingdom included Iceland, the Orkney Islands, the Faroe Islands, and settlements on the southern tip of Greenland. The Danish kingdom also reached further down and included parts that are now modern-day Germany. So what we're talking about when we say a Nordic Union is actually a landmass stretching from near St. Petersburg to Greenland and from the Barents Sea to around Flensburg. If you look back to when King Magnus, way back at the start of this century, became king of Norway and Sweden, he was already ruling over the largest geographical area in Europe then, and now it's even bigger. So how did all this come about in just a few summer weeks in Kalmar? It's a big step, and definitely not in everyone's interest. Well, we've seen how Maya and her allies have been laying the foundations for this for a long time now. They've proclaimed Eric King everywhere, they've weakened the nobilities, strengthened the rule of law, and so on. Moreover, there's this clear outside threat that we talked about from the Mecklenburgs on Gotland and the remaining pirates wherever they are. And as we know, nothing unites people more like a common enemy. That is definitely true, and historians point to the threat of invasion and of outside threats like Mecklenburg and the Hansa as having been conducive to the Scandinavian kingdoms coming together in a formal union. So apart from Eric as king, what did they actually agree on? Well, a union's brev, a union letter that stipulated the terms and the form of the union, is written. It's dated from the 13th of July 1397, and the original is still preserved in the Danish National Archives in Copenhagen, which is really cool. We'll come back a bit later on to see just how historians have analysed this document, but first let's break down what it actually says. Yes, it is signed by 67 people in total, two archbishops, 10 bishops, 5 lesser clergy, 46 knights and 4 squires from across the three Nordic kingdoms. And it can be split into five parts. Yeah, in the sense that it deals with five separate themes. The document itself isn't really split into five parts, it's actually split into nine clauses with no apparent order or grouping to them, but we just thought this is an easier way for us to talk about it by splitting up into our own five sort of themes or areas. Correct, and thank you for clarifying that. The first part concerns the order of succession in the Nordic Kingdom. Now, Eric is king of each of these kingdoms, but also of them jointly. So the letter states that if and when he dies, one king and no other shall be elected to govern all three kingdoms, and thus the kingdoms will never be parted again with the will of God. This makes it clear that the union is intended to not just be a temporary thing, but provisions are laid down to make it last by making the succession process for a joint ruler clear. 
It goes on to say that if the king had one or several sons, his successor should be appointed from among them. But if he only had daughters, the new king should be elected from among their sons. Finally, if the king died without children, the council of the three kingdoms should jointly appoint the man whom they consider most suitable. So they've covered all eventualities here. Apart from the fact they don't mention what happens if the king only has daughters and they have daughters themselves, not sons. Sadly, I think at this point in time they considered that the same as having no children at all. Yeah, so they haven't really covered all possibilities, but they've covered a lot, I guess. It's just that women never count. Now onto the second part, which concerns how the king should rule and states that he should rule house, estate, law and verdict according to the old already existing laws of each individual kingdom. The wording in the letter is that there should not be any law or justice transferred from one kingdom to the other. So no Danish laws copied and pasted into Swedish law or vice versa. Furthermore, the king is obliged to govern the castles, fiefs and jurisdictions according to the laws of each kingdom. However, there's one notable exception to this, and that's if you're declared an outlaw in one kingdom, you're an outlaw in the whole union, which sort of makes sense, because it's done in order to prevent people just running across the border and escaping justice and saying, oh, I'm in uh, Norway now, you can't catch me. A bit like that Simpsons episode where uh, Homer steps across the border between Australia and America about 15 times in 10 seconds and then gets punched in the face for being an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) To stop that. (laughs) To stop stuff like that happening. The next part is the part I like to call the Three Musketeers rule because it basically says that the union is one for all and all for one. The kingdoms shall come to each other's aid in case of war with an outsider. This forces a change to the law of service in each kingdom. There is now a duty to fight, and in particular for those knighted, a duty to provide horse and armour, not just for your own country, but for the other two as well. It's a bit like a medieval form of NATO. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose. But without the 2% budget clause... Yeah, we know they're pretty stingy with their money. Yeah. (laughs) The next part deals with the kingdom's relationships with each other and that there shall be internal peace and harmony within the union, which is pretty extraordinary, really, considering how much these three have been at war with each other over the last couple of hundred years. The letter actually acknowledges this, so fair enough, and it talks about this conflict fraught past by saying, Henceforward shall the fighting and disagreement, which has existed since a long time, shall be put down and never spoken of or resumed. (laughs) I like the never spoken of part, just like, we shall forget about all the times we used battle cows against each other and instead the nordic kingdoms shall now as it was phrased in the letter remain in concordance and love so that none of them shall depart from the other in dissension or disunion well that's very conclusive and quite nice of them i guess and i suppose the very foundation of a union is not to fight against each other so that's that's pretty fundamental The final part also deals with the Union's relationship with the outside world and states that in negotiations with another country, the king and representatives from each country shall partake and make decisions based on what's best for all three countries. Again, it's a bit along that musketeer theme that in dealing with the outside world, the idea is to find strength in unity. 
Yeah, you can imagine this is really annoying the Hansa because this is exactly what they don't want. And historians have often pointed to this dual aspect of the coronation letter because in one hand it's talking about a united front always doing the same thing together, but at the same time on the other page it's talking about allowing differences internally to remain and even prosper. Yes, Vivian Etting in her book Margarete I argues that the clauses in the document that stress the allowance of internal differences quote, reflect the councillor's fears of a totally integrated kingdom in which the king's power would be almost total and therefore beyond control. It was clearly important to them that King Eric's government of the union would be founded on the separate laws of each kingdom. And so, in many ways, the document and the founding of the Kalmar Union reflects the need to strike a balance between poles of power, between union and nation and crown and nobility. It attempts to get the best out of what union has to offer, primarily safety from outside threats, whilst retaining independence for the nations. Similarly, it tries to get the best out of what power the crown has to offer, strength, stability and a strong rule of law, whilst retaining independence for the nobility, thus allowing for the pursuit of independent wealth and local power. Lars Olof Larsson, in his book Kalmar Unionens Tid, The Era of the Kalmar Union, points to how these two conflict lines will follow the Kalmar Union throughout its existence, something that we will no doubt have reason to come back to. Yeah, because, spoilers, this union is something that's going to be around with us for quite some time now. We won't spoil any more by saying for how long or what's going to happen, but you should get comfortable with the concept that Sweden is now in a union with Norway and Denmark and not fighting them as much. Yeah, settle your mind into that idea. The old arch enemies have become united. The Kalmar Union, the first Nordic Union, it's here. It is, and it's widely considered to be a triumph for Margareta, not only politically, but also personally. As a matter of fact, the coronation letter, that very document which lays out the foundation of the union, ends with a long section in which thanks are given on behalf of the kingdoms to Queen Margareta for all her efforts during the past years. Oh, that's nice of them. And probably totally voluntary as well. She wasn't looking over their shoulder, like, making sure they wrote in a... big thank you to her. No, that definitely didn't happen. (laughs) Also, let's not forget that with the meeting in Kalmar and the foundation of the Union, Margareta also manages to massively snub her old enemy Albert one last time. Because all of this, the Union, the coronation of Eirik, all of it, is a blatant violation of the Lindholmen Treaty that they signed just two years earlier. Remember, that treaty had left Albert with the royal title at least until the deadline that was set for his ransom payment or the surrender of Stockholm, which is still a year away. Technically, Albert has another year to find money to pay the ransom, and that's why Stockholm is still in this intermittent phase of being controlled by the Hansa, and during this time no new monarch should be decided upon either. But Margaret is not going to wait around for that. She and Eric struck whilst the iron was hot and pressed on with the idea for the union without any concern for what they'd promised Albert and the Mecklenburgs. We'll come back to see what they have to say about it later on. Speaking of Margareta and Eric, where does the formation of the Kalmar Union leave them in terms of their relation to each other? 
because Erik is now formally king, like we said, not just of the three Scandinavian kingdoms, but also of the Union. Well, for a long time, it was the generally accepted argument among historians that the formation of the Kalmar Union equaled the end of Margareta's rule, since Eric had been crowned king, like you said. It was even up on the wall in the medieval history museum in Stockholm that we went to uh, two days ago. It started Eric's rule here and said that Margareta ended, so even a museum is saying that. Yeah. However, it's not actually mentioned in the coronation letter, nor in any other document. On the contrary, there are records that show that noblemen swore to faithfully administer any royal fiefs granted to them by both King Eric and Queen Margareta, then and in the future. So in that sense, she had no means been removed from official royal power. Moreover, and sort of along the same lines, the stipulations put in place when Margareta took over the throne in Norway all the way back in 1388, when the Royal Council in Norway emphasised that she should retain the right to govern and lead the kingdom during her lifetime, that's still in place, even though she had decided to adopt Eric as heir. And now he's been crowned as king, but she hasn't really been removed as queen. And all this comes together with the fact that we know about Margareta's person, about herself, and I think it's fair to say that we haven't seen the last of this very stubborn and uh, powerful lady, because she's not just going to shrink away into the shadows. No, definitely not. I don't foresee someone like Margaretha just disappearing. Also, she's only 44 years old at this point, so still, at least in modern terms, very young. Indeed, and the meeting in Kalmar in these summer weeks in 1397 are clearly an important event in the history of the three Scandinavian kingdoms as well as Margaretha. But just like with most important events, it's also given rise to plenty of debate and discussions and differences in how it's viewed among historians, the medieval museum in Stockholm included. It certainly has, and it is important to know a bit about those discussions when we consider the formation of the Kalmar Union, that it wasn't just as simple as a bunch of noblemen met King Eric and Queen Margaret in Kalmar and they formed a Nordic Union... Everyone lived happily ever after. No, there's a bit more nuance in this, so let's look at two issues historians have raised about the formation of the Kalmar Union, starting with the very document itself. Yes, we have been referring to this coronation letter as being what lays out the foundation of the Union, but it is quite problematic as a historical document. First of all, it's written on paper, not on parchment. And this might seem like a bit of a niche difference, but at the time, parchment was always used for official important documents because it was more durable. The letter that we have also has corrections and insertions all over it. There's basically a lot of tracked changes if you want to reference Microsoft Word. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Along the same lines, there are questions raised regarding whose signatures are on it, or rather whose aunt. That's because only 10 of the 17 Nordic councillors have put their seals underneath, and none of these come from Norway. And moreover, the seals that are put on it aren't the hanging official seals which at the time would have been required on an official treaty of such importance. It's more of a mini-seal. The lack of Norwegian signatures on the document in particular, and even lack of Norwegian presence at the meeting in Kalmar, is something that has raised questions among historians. 
Yeah, why were there no Norwegians there? Did they not like Eric as king? Had they all died in the plague? Maybe they didn't agree with a union altogether, or the Baltic Sea could have been so tumultuous that they couldn't even travel to Kalmar. These are all questions that have been raised. If we look collectively at the conclusions reached by the historians that have looked at this, it is fair to say that no, the lack of Norwegian presence in Kalmar most likely wasn't due to them not liking Erik. Instead, it's more likely that they didn't bother coming since they had already heralded him as king and just didn't see the need to do it again. Especially if you're looking at this as a draft document, that could make some sense. And Norway was also the country where both Margareta and Eric had been proclaimed rulers first, quite a while back, before they'd been done so in Denmark and Sweden. So maybe the Norwegians felt that this was a topic they dealt with years ago and there's no need to revisit it. Additionally, the Norwegians would have had the longest to travel to Kalmar, and so it makes sense that they would have put more thought into whether or not they actually needed to be there. At this point in time, the vast majority of travelling was done at sea due to the lack of a decent road network inland, and the Baltic Sea, as we know, wasn't the nicest or safest route to travel even when it was calm from a pirate point of view, but there's still pirates out there, so this is a genuine question they would have had to ask themselves. So all in all, there could be quite a few good reasons for Norwegian noblemen thinking twice about whether they really needed to go to Kalmar. And whilst they hadn't all died in the plague, the Black Death did certainly hit Norway and Norwegian nobility hard, which we talked about in our episode on the Black Death. By the late 1300s, Norway had been decimated, and in some ways it was the weaker of the three Nordic kingdoms. Still, that's not to say there weren't any Norwegians in Kalmar. There definitely were some noblemen present from Norway. One Norwegian absence that's particularly noticeable, though, and that historians haven't really been able to find an explanation for, is the absence of the Norwegian archbishop, because remember, it was just two archbishops that crowned Eric, not all three. In fact, there aren't any Norwegian bishops present either. Considering the power that the church had in society at the time, and the status of this clerical nobility that the bishops were part of, it seems like at least someone should have been present at an event as important as this meeting in Kalmar. True, but you forget there was actually one Norwegian church official present called Master Jöns. Master Jöns happened to be in Denmark in the summer of 1397, and whilst he was there, he gets a letter from the Pope saying he's been named Bishop of Orkney. That's good for him, and I guess so. He's sort he is a bishop, but he hasn't really started his job yet, so it depends how you count him. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so when it's time for him to head back to Norway, and presumably onwards to Orkney, he goes with his Danish colleagues via Kalmar and attends the meeting there. Consequently, there actually was a Norwegian bishop present, just not one that had been sent from Norway. Warhood even started his job, so <laughs> yeah. he hasn't even got his password and uh, new computer yet. He's just hasn't even turned up at the office yet. But he has accepted the job offer. That's true. So it's a bit of a philosophical question, really, if he's started or not. But anyway, all this taken together, the type of paper the letter is written on, the types of seals, the lack of Norwegian bishops and archbishops, it all does call into question what this document we're using as a main historical record for the foundation of the Kalmar Union, what actually is it? 
the nature of the coronation letter and how much importance it should be given when viewing historical developments have been a debate among Nordic historians for generations. Most historians today agree that the preserved coronation letter was likely only a draft, or at least a version that was intended to be further worked on and updated. Something that supports this is the fact that it concludes with a stipulation saying that six letters on parchment, with a copy of all the clauses that have been stated, should be issued, and two copies supplied to each kingdom. These copies were then to be sealed by King Eric, Queen Margareta, the respective councils and the towns. But then again, as we know, only ten councillors signed this version, so we don't know if the six letters on parchment were then actually ever produced or not. What we do know is that if they were, all have been lost to history. Perhaps the coronation letter that we have spent most of this episode talking about was nothing more than a rejected draft of a union treaty that was never confirmed. And we are guilty of doing exactly what Danish historian Kai Hörby criticised history for doing when he said that the union letter has been given an importance inversely proportional to its formal defects. Yeah, perhaps this is true. But then again, we know that a so-called Vidisa was issued some 30 years after the meeting in Kalmar. And this is a testified copy of a document. So if they testified a copy of the coronation letter decades later, then that gives an indication that it was considered valid. The stipulations made in the document then formed the basis for later negotiations within the Nordic Union. So it seems like it was a good beginning. Yes, so there's definitely good arguments on both sides here. Perhaps it shouldn't be seen as a legal treaty, but rather as a document that bears witness to a negotiation. Yeah, a negotiation and a compromise. That's two words that sum up the meeting in Kalmar, the documents we've seen, and overall the union itself. And We've seen how Margareta has been able to strengthen her and her dynasty's position and the role of the crown over the last few years. And the Kalmar Union, the coronation of Eric as a union king and everything that comes with it is a culmination of that process. Moreover, it's a strengthening of their position against outside enemies like the Vitali brothers, the Hansa and the Mecklenburgs. But at the same time, Swedish historian Erik Lönnroth also highlights that the negotiations in Kalmar to a large extent represents the nobility's interest as well, not least with the clause that meant that each country retained its domestic law and council rule. It was a union, but not a merger of the Nordic kingdoms, and the nobilities benefited from that. Lönnroth argues that the Kalmar Union represents a struggle between two political systems. Margareta tried to establish a régimen régal, meaning a system that enlarged the political power and influence of the crown to the outmost. The Nordic councillors and nobility, on the other hand, tried to establish a régimen politicum, which placed more power in the hands of the council and which would secure the interest of the nobility. And so, not for the last time in Nordic politics and history, we've ended up with a compromise. No one gets exactly what they wanted, but instead, in the struggle between two systems, a middle ground is formed. Yes, and whether it's going to be a happy middle ground uh, remains to be seen. 
But the Kalmar Union is here, and with it we've entered into a new period of Swedish history as we chug along through the Middle Ages. We'll have to see later how Margrethe and Erik move forward and utilize this strong political power base that they've built for themselves. And now, before we finish this episode, uh, there's one more bit of history, and I just want to mention a fun story that involves an English king, namely Richard II of Shakespeare fame, of one of the many Shakespeare famous uh, king plays. He's ruling in England at this time, and already back on April Fool's on 1st of April 1393, four years before the meeting in Kalmar, Richard writes to Margareta congratulating her on Eric being elected king in Norway. Richard says that Eric will follow her in ruling the other two Nordic kingdoms as well, which is obviously what happens, and he does become this union king of all three. So maybe Richard II was a bit of a psychic, or he was just trying to be a bit nice to Margareta doing this big, bold prediction. Is it psychic or flattery? That really is the question here. But yeah, what he writes ends up happening... The whole reason that the two are exchanging letters in the first place is actually to investigate whether a marriage could be arranged between Erik and someone from King Richard's family. Now, a marriage doesn't happen this time, but we'll see Eric does keep an eye out for English ladies later on in life. He's got his uh, typecast. He does, but all of that and so much more about his reign is yet to come. Before we say goodbye, though, we've had a real influx of messages and emails and everything recently. Uh, we'll mention a few now and save some till next time. Yeah, because it's been really great to hear from so many people and even in one case, meet up in person. Uh, we were in Gothenburg a few weeks ago and posted on our Twitter account about seeing something historical and listener Sai replied that he was actually just around the corner all the way from Australia. So naturally, we tried to fit in a very quick hello. We had about 15 minutes before we had to run <laughs> and jump on a train. Uh, but we said hi to Sai and his daughter and he's been following us since about the time we started talking about the Vikings. So for over a two years now and it was amazing to get this really random meetup uh, completely unscheduled in our uh, in our lives yeah it was such a cool chance encounter and it was so nice to meet you and your daughter Sai. Uh, we love being able to say hi and we hope the rest of your trip around sweden with your daughter was enjoyable although i heard you fell over up north slipping on the ice uh, i hope you didn't hurt yourself too much and who knows maybe next time we meet up in queensland yeah you never know that really would be flatback history of sweden on tour wouldn't it <laughs> yeah. um, and then on social media we had a message from virgil on facebook who sent us a great photo he took in a swedish church of course the photo was a mural of ansgar everybody's favorite uh, so if you want to see that go to facebook or twitter and scroll down a fair bit and you'll find it it's a really cool picture and uh, great that virgil managed to send that over to us so thank you as always for uh, listening virgil and for sending over the picture it was really cool Yes, and finally, we've had two reviews from iTunes uh, recently. I'll read out the first one. It's from RandomVK34 from India. I'm pretty sure that's the first review we've had from India. And I'm especially proud because my great-great-grandfather was born in India. So uh, that's my mini connection to India. <laughs> and it's so nice to, uh, to hear a five-star review 
funny, informative take on Swedish history. Very much enjoy your podcast, started from episode one. As someone learning the Swedish language, the phrase of the day is the best part and something to look forward to in every episode. Aww, tack så mycket. Tack så jättemycket and good luck with their learning the language and I hope you managed to fit a few of the phrases into your conversations. And then we've had another five-star review from Underbart Rulet, which means really fun in Swedish, and that's on Apple Podcasts too. And it's five stars. Uh, do you want to read that one out too, Otter? Yeah, it's titled "Very Near to Hagadösen på Urust." Hi there. Thank you for your marvelous job placing prehistory Sweden in today's mayhem in Ukraine. I am obviously thinking of your episode explaining how Rurik and his brothers struggled on their way to Byzantium. Love it. I live on Urust. Check out this island. Dog von Kjoghogen. And uh, you don't have to check out this island because it's really close to where your cousins live. I've been there a few times. Urust is beautiful. I really recommend a visit if you're on the west coast of Sweden. And it's got loads and loads of uh, historical things on there. And it's Sweden's third biggest island or something like that? Or uh, second biggest? Or? One of the definitely top five. I'm going to Google it. Okay. you Chris, speed Google uh, where Urust ranks on uh, the list of Swedish islands. I'm going to guess fifth. Third. I was right. Ooh, oh, you were right. Anyway, thank you, Doug. Yes. And thank you... To everyone who gets in touch on social media and via email, we love to hear from you always. And thank you for the reviews. Indeed. And we'll read out a load of emails uh, next time. So if you're thinking we haven't read out your message and we said we would, we will next time because uh, there's a whole bunch left to read out. So stay in tune for that. And if you want to add to that pile of messages, you can always send us a message on Facebook and Twitter or email us on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out our website, a flatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where we have listed all our Swedish phrases, the sources we use, our episode pictures, family trees, and much, much more. So tune in next time to see where Margareta and Eric go now and what they'll do at the head of this new Nordic Union. From Kamar and beyond. Yes quite <laughs> was maybe what they said i don't know maybe they did um but yeah we'll see you next time thank you for listening bye bye hey doll